Welcome to Session 5 in our study of the book of James. Today we're moving into Chapter 2 and discussing verses 1 through 13. Now, as you remember from Chapter 1, James was laying the groundwork for what living a life in Christ looks like. That as Christians, we should view adversity as an opportunity to gain wisdom and endurance in verses 1 through 8. That the blessings we receive from God should motivate us to listen and care for others in verses 19 through 26. And today, James focuses on the importance of not making distinctions or favoring one person over another. So let's read James 2, 1 through 13 from the CSB. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So as Christians, we should not show favoritism. Now, why does James address this issue? Well, because we all have a tendency to make distinctions. We, all make, we often make presuppositions based on outward appearances. For instance, my son works as a cell tower technician. He's responsible for climbing cell towers and making repairs and installations. It's a dangerous job and sometimes a dirty job. And after ripping up several pairs of work pants and ripping several work shirts on the metal shards sticking out of the tower, my son decided one day he was going to wear his oldest, most worn-out clothes to work. Well, on the way to work, he and his friend stopped at a convenience store to grab something to drink. And as my son was standing outside the store waiting for his friends, a stranger passed by. And seeing my son in his old, tattered work clothes, gave him five dollars, thinking he was homeless. Now, I assure you, my son is far from homeless. He has a great job that provides very well. And I don't blame the kind stranger for jumping to conclusions. But it is evidence of how easily we can let outer appearances determine or shape our viewpoint. We categorize people often unintentionally. It may be according to gender, ethnicity, religion, or socioeconomic status. But just because we all do it sometimes doesn't make it right. Because placing people into categories according to their characteristics diminishes their individual value as a person created in God's image. So why do we do it? 
Why do humans feel the need, whether consciously or subconsciously, to place others into categories? Well, maybe it's because it makes us feel in control or powerful, as verse 4 tells us, as if we were the judges. It bolsters our own self-esteem because we feel we're a part of the group that we favor. We want to be like them, even though we should want to be like Christ. It's as in what verses 2 through 4 tells us. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, and you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor person, stand over there, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, many Jewish people in the first century coveted recognition and honor and they vied with one another for praise. Is that so unlike today? One commentator says, pyramid climbers are with us today, not only in politics, industry, and society, but even in church. Many churches have cliques, and often new members or new Christians find it difficult fitting in. We should not show favoritism because Jesus never did, according to Matthew twenty-two sixteen. Jesus sees the potential in every person. He sees the potential in you. In the Apostle Peter, he saw the rock upon which he would build his church, not someone who would deny him three times. In Matthew, he saw a faithful disciple and a gospel writer, not a tax collector. In the woman at the well, he saw a woman who would reap a great harvest, not a hated enemy of the Jews. 1 Samuel 16:7 says, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. In verse 1, it said, don't show favoritism as you hold on to faith in Christ. In verse 4, it tells us that when we do show favoritism, we become judges with evil thoughts. So as believers, we are to be different. As saved people, we are a part of a different kingdom with different rules and ways of living. And one of the characteristics of a resident of God's kingdom is not exhibiting preferential treatment. We often judge people by their past, not their future, because the past is so easily seen. Paul, as you know, persecuted Christians, and when he was converted, the disciples did not accept him at first. It took Barnabas to speak up for him in Acts 9, 26 and 27. But by not showing favoritism, James is not suggesting that Christian love means agreeing with every person on everything or accepting their sinful behavior. Accepting everyone equally does not mean compromising our beliefs. Our belief in Christ comes first. We treat others the way God has treated us. Jesus was a friend of sinners, though he disapproved of their sin. It was not compromise, but compassion. And as we act in love towards someone, then we may begin to see qualities in them that were once hidden. Now, maybe you're someone who can identify with the poor person in verse 3. Maybe you've been discriminated against or felt like an outcast. I think we can all remember a time in our lives when we just didn't feel a part of the group. But take heart, because you are not alone. Jesus knows exactly how we feel. He too was rejected. In Isaiah 53, 2 and 3, it says, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty 
no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, like someone people turn away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet in verse 1, he is described as glorious Lord. Maybe that's why he says in John 7.24, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. But don't we often make the same mistake, judging by one's appearance? We judge on what we see outwardly instead of who people are inwardly. So how do we avoid this trap? How do we avoid the trap that comes so easily to us? Well, we must look at a person the way Christ does. If the person is a Christian, then the Spirit of Christ lives within them just as he lives in us. Therefore, we're a part of the same family. If they're not believers, then Christ still died for them. It is Christ who is the link between us and others. And that's how we can love everyone. God can use the most unlikely person to bring glory to his name. Remember Zacchaeus from Luke 19? He was the chief tax collector and a sinful man. But when Jesus went to his house, Zacchaeus was changed. He gave back four times the amount that he had extorted from others. And in verse 5, it goes on to say, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Now, God is not saying here that his kingdom is only for the chosen poor. But what he is saying is that even the poor will be elevated in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is based on his grace, not on human merit. And people in that day wouldn't expect the poor to inherit anything. But God says in Job 34:19, God is not partial to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29 says, God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. One scholar says, it's possible to be poor in this world and rich in the next, or rich in this world and poor in the next, or you could be rich or poor in both worlds, as 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 explains. It all depends on what you do with Christ and the things that he has given you. Verse 5 said God's kingdom is promised to those who love him, not to those who love this world and its riches. And in verses 6 through 9, it says, Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Again, context is key here, because in that day, it was very easy for rich people to exploit poor people, and it was easy for them to influence decisions in court. And James has given them a stern warning. Stop preferring rich people over poor people when it is the rich people who are exploiting you. Now, it sounds crazy that people would do that, but have you ever known someone who has allowed a person to take advantage of them because they were in a powerful position or had money? Someone who allowed themselves to be taken advantage of in order to get in with the right crowd? 
Well, the people here in James 2 were favoring one group of people over another, even though this group of people was taking advantage of them. And James says clearly in verse 9, that is not right. And in verse 8, he quotes Leviticus 19.18 by saying, we should love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, granted, this is a tall order. I mean, how do you love your neighbor if your neighbor is unlovable? Well, according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, love is a gift of the Spirit. So if we have the Holy Spirit living inside us, then we have the capacity to love anyone, even those who seem impossible to love. You see, love is not just an emotion or a feeling that we must muster up on our own accord, but it is an attitude, a decision of mind and heart to use the gift of love that we have been given. Loving our neighbors is fundamental to the Christian life, and it is the opposite of favoritism, because partiality singles out some at the expense of others. Again, it's about sharing what we've been given. It is by God's grace that he loves us and shows us compassion every day. We don't deserve it. And it is this doctrine of grace that motivates us to relate to people on the basis of his love for them, not on merit or social status. And in verses 10 and 11, it says, Whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you're a lawbreaker. So verse 9 told us that favoring certain people is a sin, like being a lawbreaker. And in verse 10, that even though we keep all the commands of Scripture, if we stumble in one area, such as showing favoritism, then we're guilty of breaking it all, breaking all of it. Now, this is strong language, but I believe James is making the point that just as we shouldn't categorize people, we shouldn't categorize sin. We can't say favoring one group of people over another isn't really a big deal. I mean, it's not like I'm murdering anyone. Because it's a slippery slope when we start comparing sin to sin. If a person is capable of disobeying in one area, then they are capable of disobeying in every area. Continued disobedience is an evidence of a rebellious heart. And if continued unchecked, it can lead to further sin. Which is why in verse 11, I believe he says, if you don't commit adultery, but do murder, you're still a lawbreaker. So we can't say, well, you know, I only told a couple of little white lies today. Or I only gossiped a little bit in the parking lot after church today. I mean, I didn't really commit any of the biggies, so I'm still in good with God. Well, if we begin to downplay our sin, the more we compare our sin to others, as Matthew 7 talks about, the easier it is to downplay its significance, and the more likely it's going to be to commit further sin. As Christians, we mustn't allow continuous patterns of sin to develop, because as verse 12 and 13 tells us, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We should speak and act as those who are to be judged. Now, wait a minute, you might be thinking. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those in Christ. And Ephesians 2.8.9 says by grace we are saved, through faith, not of ourselves. 
It's a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. And that's true. If we have accepted God's free gift of salvation and placed our faith and trust in Jesus, then heaven is assured. But because our salvation is given by Christ and secured by Christ, does not give us license to live however we want. Romans 14, 10 and 12 tells us, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each of us will give an account of himself to God. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. So how we live our lives matters. And allowing sin to go unchecked and unconfessed quenches the Holy Spirit's work and dilutes our testimony. So James wants us to be cognizant of the fact that there will be a time in which our actions and attitudes will be judged and rewarded. And we should speak and act as those who will be held accountable. But judgment and mercy, they are both from God, according to 12 and 13. God chastens against sin, but not for retribution or revenge, but for restoration from his great and abiding love for us. God is not sitting in heaven waiting to zap us the minute we step out of line. But knowing that God is watching helps us to stay accountable. God knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows how easily we can slide into sin. And he knows the destruction that it causes. I mean, how easy is it for us to do wrong when we think that no one is looking? Think about driving down a deserted road in the middle of the night and coming to a red light. No one else is in sight. How tempted are we to just drive on through? Do you sometimes brake when you see a police car? Why is that? Well, our conduct reveals our convictions. So our beliefs should control our behavior. And one of the best ways to determine the depth of our relationship with Jesus is in how we treat other people. So as we close, our challenge for the week is engage with someone who is not in your normal circle of life. Whether it's at the store, at a restaurant, or at work, let's strike up a quick conversation with someone rather than making those all too easily accepted assumptions. And we might just be surprised at the blessing that God has hidden there. Thank you so much for joining me this week. God bless you.